Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, starting at section 4. Enjoy! Section 4. The Slave to Righteousness Quotes now you are a slave to righteousness. Righteousness is your new master. This is not an exhortation. Paul is not exhorting us to be free from sin. He is telling us that we are free. We are no longer sin's slave. Terry Virgo And when we reach the true culture that is our aim, we attain to that perfection of which the saints have dreamed the perfection of those to whom sin is impossible, not because they make the renunciations of the ascetic, but because they can do everything they wish without hurt to the soul, and can wish for nothing that can do the soul harm, the soul being an entity so divine. Oscar Wilde, the critic as artist. Old things are passed away, all's become new, strange, He's another man, upon my word. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress So here we are, enjoying our lawless lives, our individual anarchies, having abandoned all religious or moral code of conduct. What's going to happen? Do we now run amuck, unleashing on the world unspeakable acts of cruelty and destruction, knowing that we can get away with it? The simple answer is no, because these things are alien to our nature, and because, in the succinct phrase coined by the Apostle Paul, we are slaves to righteousness. Alleluia! What a glorious realization! As the great theologian A.W. Tozer put it, when a person receives the faith that justifies, it realigns all life's actions and brings them into accord with the will of God. Thus, righteousness is not to be understood in opposition to wrongousness, for that is to live in the binary, legalistic, polarised realm from which we have been delivered. Rather, we may understand the term as natural alignment with the will of God, or being alive to God. That is who we are at the core. Doing the will of God now comes as naturally and unconsciously as breathing, as we allow the breath of life to work in us and through us without the slightest regard or reference to external codes. As slaves to righteousness, we can only produce good fruit, our natural output from a tree of life. Producing bad fruit is impossible. See also the fruits of freedom below. Yet there is no standard we have to live up to, no thing we have to be, no thing we have to produce. It also means nothing and no one can corrupt you. Has anyone ever told you you should be ashamed of yourself or said shame on you? It is impossible to shame those who are in Christ Jesus. No slave to righteousness ever had anything to be ashamed of. What's more, your transformation into this state of being was not gradual, nor laboured, nor studied. It was instantaneous at the moment faith began. 
If anyone is in Christ, says Paul, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The new is not on its way or around the corner or should be here any day now. It has come. This releases you from any obligation to make transformation happen. Being at one with the will of God is instantaneous. In any church, therefore, in any institution, there can be no seniority of holiness. You are as much a slave to righteousness as someone who has been at it for decades. Dead to Sin Quote, The true believer is dead to sin and has a new nature within that makes him want to obey God. Warren Wiersbe Let us return to Paul's great declaration. The old has gone, the new has come. Again, he is not saying the old is on its way out, is dissipating, eroding, or evaporating off slowly in some steaming vat. It has gone. No ifs, ands, or buts. Not just gone, but dead. Crucified, in fact. Crucified with Christ and no longer lives. Not partially dead, but dead. Or if you are a Monty Python fan, as thoroughly deceased as the dead parrot in the famed dead parrot sketch. This parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. So when you consider yourself a slave to righteousness, this is not a part-time position. It's not saying you are mostly righteous or 90% righteous. No, you are righteous through and through, top to toe, front to back, up and down. There's not even an Achilles heel to qualify this status. Your old self was crucified on the cross as conclusively as Moses destroyed the idolatrous golden calf his Israelites had worshipped while he was on Mount Sinai communing with God. I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. Sin is now completely alien to our nature. In illustrating this point, John Bunyan asks, Will a man give a penny to fill his belly with hay? Or can you persuade the turtle dove to live upon carrion like a crow? That is how unnatural and unappetizing sin has become for us now. Another metaphor for shedding the old self is that of circumcision, like a sloughed and shriveled foreskin, the old cannot be grafted or sewn back on. God has removed the sinful nature from us, along with its stain. He has shattered it, hurled it to the depths of the sea, removed it an infinite distance from us, or swept it away like a mist. He has removed the burden from our shoulders. He has shattered the yoke. 
Also remember that in any case, there is now no law from which sin could even be defined. Just as we are dead to sin, so is sin dead to us. It is a phantom construct. I am. Quote, if you treat an individual as if he were what he could be, he will be what he could be. Goethe. Paul does not just tell us that we are dead to sin and alive to God, but calls on us to count ourselves as such. To assist with that, I have set out below a series of transformational truths which I invite you now to repeat and take to heart. 1. The Spirit of God lives in me, therefore my will and actions naturally align with His. 2. My mind is set on what the Spirit desires. 3. My mind is life and peace. 4. I am at peace with God. 5. I have confidence before God. 6. I am a new creation and participate in the divine nature. 7. I am inherently conformed to the likeness of Jesus, and that with ever-increasing glory. 8. I am a branch of the holy root. 9. I am an instrument for noble purposes. 10. I am more than conqueror and reign in life. Well, someone thinks highly of himself? Yes, it is no small thing to be a child of God, and I invite you to embrace and live in these truths about yourself. You're all right. Now, there may be tender-hearted children of God who, on hearing that someone is a traitor, may ask, Can you mean me, Lord? No, he cannot mean you. You are a child of the Most High, an heir to the eternal kingdom, chosen for everlasting joy. In case you have been reading Scripture with doubts about your standing with God, allow me to put your mind at rest. You are holy. You have God's approval, and your prayers will be powerful and effective, pleasing to Him as incense before His throne. And allow me, while I'm at it, to demolish any other thought patterns spun from Scripture that may have been troubling you. First, though a raging fire is kept for those who deliberately keep on sinning, as a child of God you are, by definition, someone for whom that is impossible. Second, though there is that unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, no mechanism is available for you to do that because you are joined with the Holy Spirit. And third, when thoughts accuse you, they only serve to underline your innocence. Meanwhile, if you should act out of alignment with your true God-centered nature, do not fear his punishment or suppose he is going to play eye for an eye with you. Even if we are faithless, 
he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. There is nothing you can do to avert God's loving disposition towards you, nor his plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. So steadfast and unshakable is he in his love for you that you could never succeed in deterring him. So set your heart at rest. The Law in Our Hearts Quotes I shall run away from laws if laws can't live in the heart. Christopher Fry, The Ladies Not for Burning Modern studies of the heart rhythm itself show us what medical students have known since the invention of the stethoscope. A heart that sounds too much like a machine is in serious trouble. Sidney MacDonald Baker, MD, The Circadian Prescription Curse on all laws but those which love has made. Alexander Pope, Eloisa to Abelard by what mechanism are we now to be guided if we have no regard for external law? The answer lies in the law in our hearts, a concept frequently cited in the Bible. Before proceeding with this idea, though, let us examine what we mean by the heart. According to Professor Jonathan Sorday, the heart is a metaphor for the seat of truth, the core of who you are, the heart is also a self-regulating mechanism. Now consider God's promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. At the instant of faith, then, the heart is transformed. Consider, too, that each of us, as Paul puts it, is a letter from Christ written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tables of human hearts. This means the Spirit of God is now encoded in our spiritual DNA, in our cause, in our own seats of truth. And, like Christ, we are each of us a Word of God, made flesh. Therefore, Doing the will of God is now our natural inclination by the law in our hearts, outdazzling anything offered by commands or prohibitions, be they Christian or heathen. Your heart is become a flexible oracle, serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of obeying law. It serves without fear and offers as its only motive, Love compels me. That is enough. The heart knows, too, that the way of the Spirit is peace and joy, and is therefore oblivious to paths leading elsewhere, however plausible or righteous they may outwardly appear, or however strongly urged by society, church, or family, by institution or government. Nor will the heart entertain motivations arising from guilt, self-hatred, condemnation, or obligation. Let us therefore make the crucial distinction between the inner law in our hearts, our inbuilt guidance mechanism based on love, and the outer law based on condemnation. As Paul writes, The law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 
Having this law of the spirit of life in our hearts means having a kind of inner compass steering us on a godly course, something like the huge gyroscopes that spin in the bodies of great ships to keep them stable in heavy seas. Yet I have heard preachers insist congregants get their hearts right with God. Cheaply borrowing this phrase from Peter's rebuke to a sorcerer who presumed to bribe the Holy Spirit, these assailants of conscience would presume to tar the entire assembly with the same brush. Your heart is right with God. End of story. I would rather encourage you to guard your heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of life. Yet slander of the Christian heart is a long-established tradition in the church, dating back at least to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, where the faithful declare in the general confession, "We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts." Vile stuff to condemn our hearts' desires when God has promised to fulfil them. When we are motivated by the Spirit of God who lives in us, and have our minds set on what the Spirit desires, and let us dispel while we're at it the "not my will but yours" mentality so prevalent among Christians that falsely assumes our will must generally be at odds with God's when Scripture declares they are naturally in alignment. This quotation also hinges on a single moment in the Bible, when Jesus is facing the imminent horror of crucifixion. Instead, let us embrace our union of will with God. That, as theologian Thomas Merton put it, renders our actions at once perfectly mine and perfectly His. Braving the Bard. As you may have gathered by now, I am a great fan of Shakespeare and quote him often in my writings and in my life. But I challenge him on one assertion, partly because it remains a dominant belief today. In the closet scene between Hamlet and his mother, he says, "For use almost can change the stamp of nature, and either master the devil or throw him out with wondrous potency." Here. Hamlet is suggesting his mother can reform her character by reforming her habits or use, perhaps the Elizabethan equivalent of behavior modification therapy, an outside-in approach favored by a world that talks about bad habits and tries to replace them with good habits. Rather, let us allow the spirit of life to flow outward from our hearts. Dividing the word. Quote, Law is not made for the just man. One Timothy one nine. But if law has nothing to do with us, to whom does it apply? Paul answers, Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. But who is that? Luther argues law's purpose. Is to bring to Christ those who are not yet in His arms. Works and the keeping of the law must be so straitly required in the world, because of the stubborn, proud, and hard-hearted, that they may be terrified and humbled, 
for the law is given to terrify and kill such, and to exercise the old man. Upon this old man, as upon an ass, there must be laid a burden that may press him down, and he must not enjoy the freedom of the spirit or grace, except he first put upon him the new man by faith in Christ. The skilled preacher, Luther continues, is therefore one who divideth the word according to his audience. Here is then required a wise and faithful disposer of the word of God. Afflicted and contrite spirits are to be raised up through Christ, but that hard-hearted pharaohs to whom the grace of God is preached in vain must be put in fear of the law. He that setteth forth the law and works to the old man, and the promise of forgiveness of sins and God's mercy to the new man, divideth the word well. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel, and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The e-book is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprophet.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. (laughs) 